So with that, uh, I think we'll just start. I'm going to then just give the floor to Dolly Jogensen to talk about her book. Thank you very much, Finarna. It's, uh, I'm glad to be here with all of you virtually in this uh, virtual space to uh, share with you a little bit about my book, um, which came out at the end of last year with MIT Press. Uh, Recovering Lost Species in the Modern Age, Histories of Longing and Belonging. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about um, kind of how, how it's set up as a book. Um, I originally had uh, wanted to write a, a history of uh, reintroduction and rewilding, um, and that's what I started out doing. Um, and as I uh, worked on worked on that, um, I uh, realized that it was emotions that actually were at play here. It was what was making people do the things they did or not do things that they didn't do. Um, and so I had to change my project uh, and, and the book a fair amount as I went along and realized that that was what I really wanted to talk about. Um, and so that's what I've done in a series of case studies. Um, I use different studies for different parts um, of in each chapter. So it's not one study of one thing, but instead um, some, each chapter being its own case to talk about a particular emotion and how that played in uh, to that conservation activity. Um, so I wanted to um, then do a little bit of reading um, from it because I, I think a lot of times as authors, we work very hard to come up with the right way to say something. So it's, it's smarter just to tell you um, sometimes what I wrote because it's, uh, it encapsulated my thinking. Um, so I, I write in the introduction in this book, I'm going to use environmental histories of reintroduction, rewilding, and resurrection to situate the modern conservation paradigm of the modern recovery of nature. I will argue that the recovery of nature, identifying that something is lost and then going out to find it and bring it back, is a nostalgic practice that looks to the historic past and relies on belonging to justify future-oriented action. As a nostalgic practice, recovery depends on emotional responses to the loss, particularly a longing for recovery that manifests itself in emotions such as guilt, hope, and grief. So it's those three um, emotions that structure then the chapters. Um, I use a reintroduction of beavers uh, into Sweden because they'd become extinct by the late 19th century. Uh, to talk about guilt and how uh, the people involved uh, felt guilty, even though they were not the ones who had caused the beaver's extinction. So I think this was a really important thing, um, that it's about communal feelings, communal guilt. So something that goes beyond yourself, but that you feel guilty for your ancestors and what they did. Um, then I turn in the second chapter to a story of rewilding, um, using musk oxen, which were brought from Greenland 
uh, back to Scandinavia in the 1930s. Um, and this is a case where musk oxen had been gone from the Scandinavian peninsula for several thousand years. Um, and yet they were still envisioned as belonging there by the people uh, who, who brought them back. And I talk about in that chapter hope and how hope functioned for, for them, this hope that they would make a, a better, wilder, uh, more authentic, really, um, Scandinavia. Um, and they start in Norway and then they end up, the muskoxen themselves, going over the border um, to Sweden. And so I look at what the reactions were to that. And there's still this idea of hope um, from people on the Swedish side, from groups on the Swedish side, that think of it as a way to bring back some nature that was lost. But the flip side of that in this chapter is that, yes, while hope motivates those who were involved in bringing back the muskoxen, um, particularly scientists that were interested in, in um, environmental conservation, there's also fear um, by other people, uh, fear that these animals, which haven't been in this landscape, basically since people have been in this landscape. So it was very near the, the time there were people who moved uh, to the north that muskoxen disappeared from the north. Um, that there was great fear uh, for their own safety, uh, for the safety of uh, their children, uh, for their livestock, uh, for their animals like dogs, um, so, and for their way of life. And so there's a real environmental justice issue that underlies the story of the muskoxen about, well, who is it who gets to decide that something should be wilder than what it is? Um, and what kinds of emotions play into that, into either wanting it or resisting it? Um, and I, I close out this, this particular chapter um, with a, a contemporary artist. Um, so in 2015, the Norwegian artist Svara Måling uh, spent six months on a large format charcoal drawing titled Norwegian Muskox. The huge shaggy muskox stands on rocky ground, dominating the Arctic mountain landscape that shrinks behind it. Its long hair flows down the body. Wool tufts cover the top in patches as if the animal had been recently shedding. Its gaze to the left is away from the viewer, yet the stare penetrates the scene. The muskox stands ready as guard over the landscape. Tucked away in the lower left is a traditional rural cabin with its wooden walls, living grass roof, slanted wooden fence, and farm tools against the side wall. The cabin seems insignificant overshadowed by the looming large beast. This image encapsulates the contradictions of the rewilding of Scandinavia with muskoxen. Great hope was placed in these animals, first by Adolf Hohl and the Norwegian Polar Institute, and later by tourism businesses and environmentalists. They hoped to bring back something wild to the peninsula's landscape. Muskoxen, which would be free to roam and multiply in the relatively sparse landscape, were understood 
as a unique historical component that had been lost. They had been found and that brought hope. Yet when the lost nature is restored, other things may be lost. Historically, great fear was attached to these animals by mountain trekkers, rural farmers, and indigenous herders. Allowing musk oxen to roam free and multiply came with costs, real cost of damaged property, lost time, and even lost lives. Those fears were not unfounded. And so then I turn in the chapter after that to the case of the passenger pigeon and attempts to reconstruct <laughs> or resurrect uh, the passenger pigeon uh, genetically, which is going on uh, right now. And uh, progress is being made uh, scientifically to making new animals that are, as they call them, passenger pigeon 2.0. So a thing that looks and seems like a passenger pigeon um, in, at the genetic level. And so I, I try to understand why that would be um, from the emotional perspective. What, what would lead you to want to make that uh, investment of time? Um, because it's not just that, oh, somehow they're missing from the landscape and, and, and you want them back, but there's an emotional drive. And so for that chapter, um, I look at grief and how a profound sense of loss and grief for grieving something that's dead um, has functioned in the story of the passenger pigeon. And I think the best example of that um, really is the scientist who um, at the Smithsonian was responsible for doing the autopsy of the very last passenger pigeon. Um, so R.W. Schufelt uh, performed this autopsy of uh, Martha, the last passenger pigeon when it came. And so he published a, a paper, a scientific paper, uh, with you know, very detailed work about the, the skin and the anatomical description, and there's numerous photographs, it's very technical. Um, but it, and, and she had died from severe internal bleeding, and so he documents all that. And he writes in a very dis distant, objective, scientific token, tone until he comes to one particular point in in this in this uh, article when he talks about doing the autopsy of the heart uh, he wrote i therefore did not further dissect the heart preferring to preserve it in its entirety perhaps somewhat influenced by sentimental reasons as the heart of the last blue pigeon that the world will ever see with the final throb of that heart, still another bird became extinct for all time. The last representative of countless millions and unnumbered generations of its kind, practically exterminated through man's agency. And what's fascinating about this is when you read it in context, it stands out so entirely differently than the entire rest of Schufeld's text. Um, so in that chapter, I look at that kind of grief and how that uh, functions. And then I turn to a chapter about how do we tell these stories? How do we remember them? And I use um, bears uh, using the story of Bruno, uh, the bear uh, who rewild himself um, through Austria and Germany um, from Italy, where 
he was supposed to be, right? So according to his, the humans um, that allowed him to be there. And so I look at how we tell stories. How do, how do we tell them in museums? How do we tell them with tourism? Um, and, and what messages come across? And then finally, in the very end of the book, I, I turn to the issue of love. Um, and what would that mean to talk about loving the lost? And so here's what I wrote there. Love for the living is one thing, but love for the lost is quite another. Some of the emphasis on loss, grief, and guilt when facing species extinction might be explained by E.O. Wilson's idea that humans have an instinctive bond with other living beings, a love of life or biophilia. Perhaps, however, this bond is not instinctive, but learned. It's learned through the histories and collective memories shared of animals and their worlds, which is why people can be motivated to save pandas or kill wolves, even if they've never seen either in person. The emotional frameworks deployed to call for beaver reintroduction or the rewilding of mountains or the resurrection of the passenger pigeon all depend on histories to instill a sense of love for something that's never been seen. This love motivates the desire to find the animal again, the remnant of an animal, whether the remembrance is in physical form or in the stories we tell each other. It's not the same as the animal itself. As Aldo Leopold remarked, there will always be pigeons in books and museums, but these are effigies and images, dead to all hardships and all delights. Book pigeons cannot dive out of a cloud to make the deer run for cover nor clap their wings in thunderous applause of mass-laden woods. They know no urge of seasons. They feel no kiss of sun, no lash of wind and weather. They live forever by not living at all. Motion and emotion belong to the living, which is why the living matter. The persons behind the recovery projects discussed in this book all wanted to bring the living back to the place they once roamed even when such attempts required strenuous effort. Although Leopold dismissed the remnants of the pigeon as less than the real thing, those acts of remembrance did affect his own emotional attachment to the lost species and his expressions of joint societal grief for its loss. These acts have reverberated through time with those both before and after expressing the same kind of emotions. The same holds true for the guilt felt for losing the Swedish beavers and the hope placed in Norwegian muskox. Remembering also means not forgetting. With forgetting, the animal would be framed as not belonging. There would be no longing for its return. Longing for a species who's been lost to be found is an emotional matter. Thank you very much. I'll take questions. Yes, just write down your questions or that you have a question in the chat window and I will call on you. Yes, so Elaine has the first question. 
Hi, Dolly. Thanks so much. My name is Elaine. I'm a professor of museum studies and the history of science at New York University. So joining you from the States. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, processes of collecting animals, so like killing them, hunting them as a way of preserving them, and how that plays into your narrative, especially in the museum context. I'm thinking of, you know, these sort of nostalgic displays at, say, the American Museum of Natural History of dead animals as a way of sort of loving them or eliciting the sense of nostalgia. Could you just talk a little more specifically about that? Yes, very, very good question. And, and my current work, my current project actually looks much more at that because it it was inspired by this one um, in the museum section to then look at how do we use extinct species in museums and how do we um, display them. In this case, I use this story of, of Bruno the bear um, because he's on display. So and, and there is this very conflicted way he's displayed um, in that they, they've tried to show that people did not have the same reaction to him. So he was a problem there and they label him as such because he was labeled as such in the media. Um, but you also see the ways in which they have voices from uh, people who were against um, trying to 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 kill Bruno um, in there and there is so, so his body is on display as a problem bear he's he's caught in the act he's been taxidermied in the act of um, stealing honey um, so that kind of choice that the taxidermists and the curators made um, after this particular bear was shot um, is an interesting way of making him a problem. And yet in that same room over on the side is this little um, a window where you look in where it's a shrine to Bruno um, where it has, you know, a, a cross you know, for Bruno the bear, it has picture of the landscape with crosses that were set up um, in that area. It has a, a stuffed animal that was made um, by Stife, um for to commemorate Bruno. Um, T-shirts, save Bruno the bear. Um, so it's an interesting way of putting the two together. Um, as far as other, you know, these kind of more well-known conservation things, yes, thinking about, for example, in the American Museum of Natural History, the uh, bison exhibit is one that's been written about a number of times. Uh, Hannah Rose Shell has a nice piece about that, um, for example, uh, looking at how, yeah, how they encapsulate that kind of irony too about, oh, we're going to show this as the wild that's out there, but they were specifically collected because they were rare. Um, and then they were put into a position to uh, educate uh, the American public, in this case, uh, about something that would be lost. Everyone anticipated that they were going to go extinct. Um, and so I, I think many times those kind of displays 
are are teetering at an edge um of of you know having been collected often at a point in which uh things were rare and then trying to talk about conservation with them um so so i, I it's a very interesting quandary i think for a lot of uh museums to be in now what many museums since i've visited so many with these projects now um many of them really don't talk about the history of the species they're much more interested in natural history museums and talking about the actual uh you know the, the characteristics of the species oh how big does it get how many babies does it have you know where does it live um without talking about its relationships with humans um and you know so so you might get that okay it's a vulnerable status but many times you actually don't know why um in exhibits so i think there's still a lot of work to be done in uh thinking museology from a museology standpoint as to what are the stories we tell when we put them on display what do, what do we put up with them um and the context in which they're put because one of the things i, I did find with this book um i had tried to find beavers and muskox on display in scandinavia right these, these were reintroduced animals that had a history in the past um, and what you see is that the story just isn't there i mean people do not talk about the fact in in sweden in the exhibits that beavers were extinct in sweden it doesn't show up um, there was one exhibit where it did and it and that exhibit actually got renewed and replaced because they changed the whole gallery um so so i think there's a, a missing element uh with the beaver story with the muskox they tend to talk about it, the the bringing of the muskox more but they say very little about uh the relationship between muskox and people so thank you so much <laughs> all right so we have three more questions lined up so we can start with allison Hi, good morning uh, from Pacific Daylight Time. Um, so thank you for sharing, Dolly. And my question is about, um, you know, the pretty broad scope of your project. You've done a, a real comparative work. Um, and so I'm interested to hear you talk about, you know, what, what emerged from these different cultural and national contexts that you were exploring, right? I mean, I feel like terms like resurrection, at least in the American context, often get conflated with um, this idea uh, that we've seen pop up in the past couple days about rhetoric about, you know, Easter and the country needs to reopen by Easter, right? Um, <laughs> so, so I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts on just the comparative nature of your project. Great question. Uh, yeah, so when I when I had originally proposed the project or I thought about it, it was all Scandinavian cases. Um, so a case that isn't in the book that was originally thought about was the wild boar and its you know, reintroduction into Scandinavia. Um, what, what had happened was that the, uh, there was a TED uh, 
events about the extinction um, that I had just happened to stumble upon when it was about to happen. Um, and so I'd, I'd uh, paid attention to it, you know, watched it and then looked at the, the kind of the discussions that were going on uh, about it. And that's how I ended up with the passenger pigeon as a, a case. It wasn't my original intent, but I thought that it actually showed how the how there's different levels of involvement here. I mean, reintroducing something, um, you know, is where something hasn't been gone for that long. Generally use that word if it's less than uh, 200 years since it's, since it's not been around. It's seen as a, a, it's often been lost because of industrialization, right? So, and which is very different than, um, the the rewilding where something's been gone for a couple thousand years but but it still exists it's out there it's somewhere and you're gonna now bring it back to this place um and this resurrection took it one step further for me it took it to wow this thing's actually dead it's actually gone and you're still wanting to bring it back you still believe it's lost and it should be found and you know so that's why i i went that way as I as I was going along instead of staying with the wild boar case. Um, I've since had a, a, a master's student write a very nice master's thesis about uh, the Swedish wild boar, if anyone can read, you know, Norwegian uh, and is interested in it. Um, but yeah, so, so I kind of, if you will, stumbled upon the constellation but for me, the constellation showed a, a progression that that I really wanted to to work with. It does mean that you know it doesn't have a tight tight focus. Um, although interestingly, what what did happen was all of the cases, in essence, revolve around starting at um, you know the end of the nineteenth, beginning of the twentieth century, right at this you know turn of the century moment uh, is when they all start, really. So as far as, you know, talk about bringing them back. So there is something about that, uh, that, that all that made them in my mind, at least somewhat stick together. Thank you. All right, uh, then Dominic is next. Hi, thanks, uh, Dolly. That was great. I'm really looking forward to read the book. Um, my question actually concerns the uh, um, human and the non-human actors in your story. And um, you named uh, or two of these animals. You 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 mentioned uh, Martha the pigeon and Bruno the bear are individuals. And I guess in the in the the human side of the story is also a mixture of individuals acting, but also groups like associations and stuff. And I was just wondering if you could find any differences or, or um, comparisons um, in both sides of the story, both the, the human and the non-human animals, uh, whether they were individuals or groups or species. Thank you. That's, that's a great question. Um, yeah, because there's these named ones, as you point out. Uh, there are also animals that do things as groups. So um, a 
small herd of musk oxen uh, moved from Norway to Sweden themselves in the 1970s. So they crossed the border because, of course, it's just a mountain range, right? So if you, if you go over the mountains to the other side, you're in a different country. Um, so they did that. Um, and, you know, then the humans have to respond to that agency. Um, beavers are always brought in in pairs um, in order to make family groups. So they're, they're caught that way uh, in, in my story. I mean, once in a while you have a single beaver that's, that's put out because a mate has died or there appears to be a problem, but most of the time you, you catch them as a pair. And in fact, they start to even catch them with their kits also so that you in, bring over a whole family unit, um, so that they can, uh, you know, reproduce because that's what you want them to do. Um, so there are kind of these groups or unnamed individuals, if you will, that go about as animals doing their business. Um, and then on the, the human side, yes, there's both individuals. So Adolf Hall, who was the director of the Norwegian Polar Institute, or what becomes the Norwegian Polar Institute, um, you know, led the effort to bring back muskox. To, to Norway um, from Greenland. Um, it had both kind of this environmental aspect, but there were also some political aspects, which I talk, talk about, um, in that there's a, a claim by Norway at that time to Greenland. So, you know, having your animals, so, so what animals are in Greenland really belong in Norway too, with that kind of political claiming. So there's particular individuals like that or individuals um, in the case of the beaver, um, you know, there's one guy, um, P.M. Jensen, who traps, who catches all of the beavers that are taken to, to Sweden. So every beaver, and today there's 100,000 beavers in Sweden, according to scientific estimates, there were zero um in 1921 so all of the beavers came from these reintroduced about 80 total beavers and they were all caught by the same guy in the same area so there's clearly you know individuals uh matter in the story um but then at the same time there are these larger things and often those individuals are embedded in larger uh groups, organizations who act. So for example, Eric Festin, who had the idea to bring back the beavers to Sweden or, or made it real. I mean, it was an idea that was floating out there. He organized it. He was the director of a, of a museum, another museum tie, the director of the county museum in, uh, in Jämtland. But he was also the secretary of the, um, their, group of environmental, uh, the Swedish Environmental uh, Society that was local there, uh, so their chapter. Um, and that organization was involved in bringing back the beaver and doing organization. So, so it's both an individual, but then there's an organization. And then it kind of, you know, moves and trickles down so that after that first reintroduction, a bunch of other people get involved. And you have, um, 
study circles of youth that raise money to set out beavers. You have hunter associations that raise money uh, to put out their beavers. Um, you have forestry guys doing it. Um, you know, so it operates on a lot of different levels, both as individuals and as, as groups for both the humans and the non-humans in the story. What I find interesting from, to bring it back to the museum's question, is that you rarely get individual stories about animals, um, except if it's one of these, you know, named celebrities. Um, otherwise, they are, you know, kind of talked about in mass, right? They're just a represent this particular individual who's on display just is supposed to represent their entire species um, as if you put a human in there and said well you, you represent all humans uh, so which which we would probably find well i guess there's two kinds of exhibits right so so there are exhibits that do that and then um and they tend to be now reacted upon in, in negative uh ways because you're othering those people that, that so those tend to be the kind right um so an anthropological exhibit okay we're gonna you know put this person that looks like this and they represent their little tribe or something well you do the same thing with animals right so you say here's a beaver it represents all beavers everywhere instead of okay it has a particular history regardless of whether it has a name so great thank you all right, then uh, Tina had a question. Yes, good morning. And um, thanks to Finarni and Dolly for doing this. It's terrific to have something else to focus on. Um, so really interesting stuff, Dolly. And it made me think about the work on ecological grief and climate change. And so my question comes from there. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, What's being recovered beyond the animal? Is this a way of life? You know, is the animal a sort of metaphor for something else that's, that is the object of longing? And when I ask this, I'm also thinking about work um, in Alberta, in Banff National Park, to bring back bison. And this is all caught up in the idea of reconciliation with indigenous peoples and for indigenous peoples themselves the bison uh returning is all about a resurrection of a culture so maybe you could speak to what's being recovered beyond the animal thanks great question um in the beaver story in particular there's a lot of that culture talk um so the people involved in the reintroduction project in trying to, you know, get the beavers back to Sweden, they often uh, in their texts write about the beaver, how it used to be, how, um, how their grandmother, you know, used beaver castorium as a medicine, or they write about uh, the, the hunters and trappers who used to hunt beaver. And they will, uh, you know, often, they often use language about 
um, this then being lost from Sweden um, as a, a nationalistic uh, kind of loss, so a loss of something that, that was here, that was part of the nation, that was part of their identity. So I think the beaver story aligns with what you're talking about with the, with the bison. Um, in that they considered it something missing that was inherently Swedish. Uh, and, and not that they didn't recognize there were also beavers in Norway, right? That's where they were getting them from. But that, but that it was something within their identity that was missing. So yes, I think that's a very clear uh, link there. Um, the muskox, however, was, was never really like that um, because there were no stories told about the muskox because the muskox have been gone for thousands of years and there's no cultural memory of the muskox. And to me, this makes a, a difference um, because what I see is that they don't talk about it that way. Um, instead, it's a hope that it will create a, a wilder, um, I mean, they still look at it as somehow a more complete, uh, mountain landscape but it's not that it was culturally significant so in fact in that case it's the opposite one who are the people who talk about culture so it's the fear side so the people who live in those landscapes live and work there uh, which are the rural farmers in Dovra mountains of Norway and particularly the Sami uh, reindeer herders um, who are herding their uh, reindeer in Jampland uh, Herjedalen in Sweden, where the muskox go over to, it's those people who talk about losing their way of life, right? So they're anti, they're against the rewilding efforts um, because they'll be negatively affected. Um, with the passenger pigeon, um, it doesn't, really operate in, in the way about in, in a culture because the culture of passenger pigeon basically from a white culture of passenger pigeon was to shoot as many as you could and you know supply food back to the back to the eastern coast cities um, so that's never really talked about as something positive um, there it's much more of a abstract you know Oh, billions of birds and the darkened skies, and we're somehow missing that. Um, but but I think those the the beaver case aligns very well um, with this idea that there's a cultural aspect. And in fact, what I see is that when they tried to re reintroduce beavers into England um, and well, UK, the the reintroduction was was actually happened first in Scotland. Um, it actually was problematic because you don't have those stories of the beaver. You don't have that kind of cultural recency because, because beaver were probably not all that numerous um, and probably extinct somewhere about 500 years ago. And there just is not a lot of lore or these kind of stories that were told. Uh, and so, they actually have a problem making a claim about culture. And so there's a, there's a lot of resistance uh, to beaver reintroduction in and, and, uh, Scotland and then 
later in, in the rest of the UK. Um, although now they're back, uh, mostly because people released them without permission. Um, so, so they've, you know, repopulated the landscape a good chunk by themselves. Okay, so then we have a question. Uh, you can see it typed into the chat from uh, Matthew Archer, who does not have a microphone. I'm just going to read it out then. So, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about guilt and responsibility, especially thinking about how gift sometimes might really be warranted. For example, a person whose family wealth comes from oil extraction, or someone who is complicit in settler colonialism, even just passively, etc. Do you think guilt can be mobilized in ways that promote social or environmental justice? Yeah, I mean, and, and this kind of gets back to, to Tina had also made the point about, um, you know, ecological grief in terms of uh, climate change. And um, this is related, right? So guilt in, in terms of being guilty for something that other people have done. So, so this is a difference, I, I say, you know, in this case, I'm not talking about guilt for something you yourself have done. So there's been some work by sociologists that look at uh, environmental action. And if you feel guilty for it, you know, will you uh, buy paper instead of plastic? Or, you know, do you, do you recycle more because you feel you're guilty? Um, and they, they do show some effects on behavior, but not necessarily on attitude for being guilt, for feeling guilty about something. Uh, but it is different when you're talking about something that you didn't do. And, and the question here brings this up, you know, like family wealth from oil extraction or complicit in settler colonialism, which could happen long before we now are here. And that is the case with the beaver uh, example. Uh, those people had not been involved. They didn't know anybody who, by the time uh this happened there was no one really alive who were involved in beaver trapping or killing um it was more stories they heard stories um so it obviously was mobilized for something good in that uh you know beavers which had been an integrated part of the landscape and our major landscape engineers um, are back in full numbers as, as much as really they were prior to extinction. Um, so I think, yes, you can see that, uh, that, that it can actually be mobilized, that the ecological grief, so grieving um, over the loss of things that we may not directly uh, know. Uh, so you can grieve over the loss of um, the Great Barrier Reef, uh, for example, and, and say, oh, you know, coral bleaching and it's all going away and I'm going to grieve for it. Um, so th there can be positive things that can happen from that, absolutely. And it can mobilize, uh, be mobilized to make difference. I think one has to be very careful though with these emotions and if you're going to try it and tap into them intentionally um it can also not necessarily lead to the outcome you you wanted um 
you can instead end up paralyzing people because I mean, that's what we're seeing, right? With, with many of the environmental problems, people feel overwhelmed. Uh, they may be grieving, but they don't know what to actually do about that. Right. So, so there can be a difference in, and grieving is an interesting example of this because you can move from grief, which may be productive to melancholy, uh, which is where you just sit in your grief and, and you just, wear the veil, all right, um, of the, the, you know, mourning for the dead, and you don't move on, you continue to just stay there. Um, and so it's a danger. If, if uh, we're not careful, if we try and talk, I think too much about grieving that, that will just end up producing melancholy that goes nowhere. It's not productive. All right, and um, yeah, so Mehdi had a question that was answered, very uh, efficient there. Uh, anyone else? This is your chance. No, well, uh, then I thought I would just let Dolly have some final words if she wants. Yeah, um, thank you all for, for the great questions. Um, I. I'm really excited that we can have this forum uh, to talk about um, these kind of new books that are out there. Uh, I just saw yesterday uh, the list is out and if you're on Twitter, uh, you can go on there and, and uh, I retweeted it from the um, group of women historians and environmental, uh, environmental history. Um, made a, a list that was supposed to be presented at the American Society for Environmental History uh, meeting that would have been happening this last uh, week in Ottawa, but had to be canceled. Um, of all the, the women uh, who had new books in the last few years, um, who are members of the, the group. And it's just amazing, really, uh, the, the scholarship and the depth of scholarship that's out there. Um, and so I'm very happy to be one of them. And I'd encourage you to uh, go find the list um, and uh, read some great books. <laughs> so um, I know uh, I have a long list of things to get through now. <laughs>